This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. My guest on this episode is Dr. Patrick Collins. Dr. Patrick Collins is an associate professor in economic geography at the University of Galway. And he's just released a book with Orpen Press. The book is called Galway, Making a Capital of Culture. The foreword is by President Michael D. Higgins. So I invited Patrick in to have a chat about this book. And what you hear in this podcast episode is an entire failure of that conversation. We do not get near the book at all. This podcast channel is to offer a flavour of Ireland. And yes, a lot of it is based within the arts. However, I want to offer more than just that. I ask Dr. Patrick what his job is and then I just sort of scurry along and we end up going for a ramble in the economic forests. I'll make no apology for this because it was a very interesting conversation. We discuss Ireland being the richest member state of the European Union, tax avoidance, gross domestic product versus gross national product, Apple versus Italy, Davos versus Oxfam, neoliberal economics, Francois Hollande, Adam Smith, Thatcherism, market dominance and oligopolies, the environment, the breakdown in the trust for key institutions of democracy and the exponential rise of corporations, living wage, Yanis Varoufakis, dignity, teleological notions, the five stages of Rostow's economic theory, carbon offsetting and carbon credits, the cost of living and housing crises, the impact of Google in Ireland, the Irish government's investment in Intel back in 1979, nine of the 10 global tech companies having a serious presence in Ireland, the European Court of Justice versus Apple, the Troika, that movie, The Big Short, markets being a collective hallucination, John Maynard Keynes, pre and post 2008 in Ireland, the Irish versus Greek economies, the spatial articulation of capital with regard to Irish villages, Celtic Tiger number two, the IDA and Enterprise Ireland, Ireland having confidence in itself and companies being embedded within Ireland, the living wage, techno-feudalism and other topics. As you can see, it's a light-hearted conversation. <sighs> As I say, we didn't manage to get on to the book Galway Making a Capital of Culture, published by Orpen Press, but we will in the future. We'll get Patrick back on again. So, without further ado, let's bring you that conversation. And give us the sound of some coins dropping in the forest. Hello, who are you and what do you do? Hi, uh, my name is Pat Collins and what I do is 
my day job is uh, lecturing economic geography at the University of Galway. Um, I'm probably sitting here in front of you because I recently published a book by the name uh, Galway Making a Capital of Culture. That's one string to my bow, uh, but there are more and we might get into them as we go along. So tell me more about your job, you know, your day job, the course that you lecture in and so on. Well, what I'm really interested in and most of my courses revolve around is economic geography. So what's that? Well, we're concerned with how and why wealth resides differently in different places. What's the story behind the relative success of, for instance, Silicon Valley? Um, And even more nationally, what's behind the success, economic success of Ireland? Because Ireland's a great case study in economic geography. I always say this to my students, you know, it would have been very easy to be an economic geographer back at the time when Jesus Christ was walking the earth because you could quite easily see with your eyes where wealth resided, you know, and that was highly agrarian-based economies. So if you had good land, well, chances were that's where wealth would reside. That um, gets a little bit more complicated as we come up to where we are now. And in the last 100 years, it's gotten extremely complicated. So when you consider Ireland in the purely geographical sense, in terms of its natural resources, its geomorphology, there is no explaining in pure geographical terms why it is we're the richest member state of the European Union. So we get into that. We talk about how economies have evolved, how societies have moved away from reliance on the physical land, towards, you know, engaging through the use of technology in alternative ways of making wealth. So why is Ireland the richest country in the European Union? Is that what you just said? Short answer, um, tax avoidance and bad metrics. Um, What about language? Language is important. Uh, Language is important in the sense that we are now the only English-speaking member of the EU, but that's what well, the well, and and Germany, <laughs> and Germany, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, what is the story behind tax avoidance? Was the second one you said? Uh, tax avoidance, bad metrics, what bad metrics. So we do. Uh, you you can look at Ireland's GDP and GMP growth rate. So internationally, we have decided that the way to measure the wealth of countries is what's called gross national product. And that's that's really an accounting exercise of how we add up all of the wealth that's created in a place in a year. And we add it all up and we get a figure. And um, that's all well and good. And indeed, was well and good when that metric was first invented, you know, and this was under the era era of kind of industrial economies. So it's a highly industrial economy metric where global trade wasn't what it is now. So, I mean... Forgive me for asking this. What's the difference between gross national product and gross domestic product? You're going to catch me out on that one now, but gross domestic product, which is... The key difference would be 
trade figures in one versus the other. So notionally gross domestic product should be just about that wealth which is created in the domestic economy. Okay. Gross national product would be um would include trade and would include products and services created okay. by non domestic entities. So going back economy. to dodgy metrics. Yes. So GMP and GDP full stop are dodgy metrics. They don't fully account for well they do fully account for economic turnover but they don't really account for wealth. They don't really account for value creation. So an economy can be really rich because it just produces lots of really rudimentary stuff according to uh, either of these metrics. Are you talking about wealth per capita then? No, no, no. I'm just talking about the kind of accounting exercise that it's just a case if it's present, it's counted. Um what I'm really getting at, really getting at, is the idea that if we are to truly understand what wealth is and what value is, we need to recognise that GMP and GDP are just part of that, right? We have, you mean, you pick up any paper, you listen to even local elections, national elections, politics, politicians will tell you they want to grow GMP, they want to grow GDP, but we now know that we've been growing GMP and GDP at what cost, you know? And the cost is obvious when it comes to the environment. I mean, it's extremely obvious. We cannot keep increasing GMP and GDP at this rate on this planet because this planet just cannot hold that. So we know that. Well, that we know it or whether we're acting on it is a whole other conversation. But we do know that. There are other social aspects to it as well. Is wealth creation the the way that we're creating wealth at the moment? I mean, you have Apple, Apple Corporation, you know, market capitalization of, last time I looked, $2.3 trillion. Now, for context, the whole economy of Italy is worth $2.1 trillion. So we have individual private corporations accumulating wealth and power that comes with wealth because it does um, to the level of nations so this brings and this these are kind of questions we deal with um, in the class this brings serious questions as to what are the social implications of that uh, every January Davos in Switzerland holds hosts the World Economic Forum, every year to coincide with that, Oxfam published their annual report. And that's usually great for some real <laughs> kick up the arse metrics. Uh, and one of the most recent reports was 68 people, 68 people on this planet hold the same amount of wealth as half of the planet's population. So we have gone through this process through this process, which I will alight <laughs> on as neoliberal economics, right? Neoliberal economics, which is all about growing GMP, all about growing GDP. Neoliberal economics is about free marketeering, permission of market capitalization accrual uh, in the form of usual corporate, usually corporations and multinational corporations. We have permitted um, all of that to happen and 
we're only really now starting to see the social and environmental ramifications of that. I mean, I can go on. Can I, can I ask then? Because I hear this top 1% and all the rest. Yes. What is the answer to that? I mean, do we, because surely, I'm thinking of a conversation I had in China with a banker mm. and he is from Switzerland. And he started talking about why he respected Trump as mm. as a as a as a politician. And this is mm. this is probably two thousand seventeen. Okay. So Trump is in his infancy in terms of being a president. Yep. And he said he was talking about I think Francois Hollande, and he said that Francois Hollande brought in a, a hike in corporation tax of something like five percent. Mm. And what had happened then was that many organizations just uprooted France and left. I could feel myself lurch economically in that conversation a little bit to the right. Uh, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, know. I'm not, I'm I not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not I know. there at all yeah. politically. So my question is this, what is the answer to this? situation where you have the top 1% owning most of the mm. planet. Uh, and because if you just do that, you know, bring in a hike of corporation tax, mm. they'll just go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I mean, tax is a crude instrument, but it's also effective, you know, it is effective. You speak of corporation tax in Ireland has for the last 20 years been the bad boy of Europe because we've had a exceptionally low corporate, in matter of fact, non-existent corporation tax, let's call it what it is, uh, you know, notionally at 12.5%, but if you're doing research and development, 0%. Um, I mean, how can we do that? I mean, this is, the European Union is part of the answer. The European Union has got Ireland and all other member states to raise corporation tax. So there's less likelihood of those places that were leaving France going outside of France now because they might as well stay in France rather than just come to Ireland. Um, more kind of beyond tax as an instrument, I mean, I get you. I, look, I understand. I understand the allure of economic policies as espoused by the likes of Trump. I mean... They are compelling in their simplicity. They are absolutely compelling in their simplicity. And you know, when you go back to the godfather of them all, Adam Smith, Adam Smith was the, you know, notionally the founding father of modern economic thought. He was a US guy, a president? No, Adam Smith was a I think Protestant. John Adams. Yes. Okay. Uh, no, Adam Smith was a Protestant reverend in uh, Scotland, Scottish uh, reverend. Um who wrote uh, in 1776 also the uh, Wealth of Nations, which is kind of considered as, you know, the veritable Bible for modern-day market capitalism. The great-grandfather of Thatcherism. Yeah, you could say. But, I mean, you know, when you read it, it is absolutely compelling stuff. I mean, the ideas behind it are, are really compelling. What's he saying in a nutshell? In a nutshell, if we're... All self-interested individuals, which I think is a fair enough assumption, right? It's a fair enough assumption to think that everybody wants... Every man for himself. Well, he's not even saying it like that. He's just saying that, look, human beings, by their nature, are self-interested. Okay, so we Not just like, human beings, I say every living organism. 
Yeah, absolutely, perhaps. And what you've got to understand that the time when he's writing this, Adam Smith is a radical. Like, he is a radical. You know, this is a, a period where it's kind of coming towards the end of the monarchies in Europe. Um, he's talking about, you know, the kind of, the idea that the divine birthright shouldn't hold sway. You know, he's, and again... The Wealth of Nations is an ethics document as much as it's an economics document. He's saying, look, let's let's all stand up one one by one and face God for our own actions. But his most compelling part of that is, if we all pursue our own self-interest, then in a free market world, we'll all be better off as a result. Right? So... He's, uh, one of the quotes is, you know, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher that I get fed, but it's the butcher's pursuit of his own self-interest. The butcher isn't going to charge £30 for a leg of lamb, especially if the butcher down the road is only charging £20 for a leg of lamb. I, I understand that I can go to that other butcher, pursue my own self-interest and uh, get something for cheaper. This butcher who was charging uh, £30, recognise his own self-interest, is better, better fed by lowering his price and that in this marketplace, in the marketplace, a free marketplace devoid of any influence, devoid of the taxes, you know, that equality and equity will be reached. So did Adam Smith foresee an economic model such as Spotify? I'm thinking of Spotify. I have more, I have more problem with Spotify than I do Apple. Yeah, I mean, like, well, of course, no, he did I'm, I'm talking about that huge uh, monopoly. Yeah. Or, well, uh, is it a monopoly? I mean, Apple's not really a monopoly. It is with Apple products, but... Yeah, no, they, they I mean, they are oligopolies. They are very holding too much power in so the marketplace. did he, Adam Smith see foresee a problem and what did he foresee it as? Well, so, he always thought that all the, the problems would be resolved by the marketplace, right? He said, but evidently they are not because our communication has improved. Am I fair in saying that? I don't know that that's why. I mean, really, why you ex- how you can explain the the dominance that the likes of Apple and Spotify have have to do with innovation? And I don't think he really thought about innovation. Okay, in the way that. So, what's the answer to that? What is the answer to market dominance? Yeah, is it is it a Davos like agreement where all the heads of state of all these countries say, okay, let's put a cap of whatever whatever they make yeah. above that, yeah. they are going to be hit with this tax. Yes, that's the answer. That's as crude as it has to be. But I mean. obviously, North Korea won't agree to that. No, nor will they Russia won't. or China. No, 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 no. They probably won't. But I mean, you know, we have these problems when it comes to you know global climate. Packs, you know, we understand that you know George or not George Donald Trump, if he gets into power, will pull out of the Paris Agreement. But you know, is that a, enough of a reason to not do it? You were going to see George Bush, weren't you? George I was w. going Bush. to say George W. Bush. I was going to say why, George why do you draw w. a similarity between uh, the two? I don't know because he pulled out of a few things as well. Okay. But um, okay, uh, so back to that agreement in Davos. Yeah, what's preventing it from happening? 
power, I mean power, like absolute power. You know, when you have corporations that are biggest than bigger than the world's biggest economies, how how can Italy tell Apple what to do? You know, how uh, we have through the process of free free marketeering enabled corporations grow to the size in terms of wealth that they hold more power than states now. So you're saying that the pact can't happen because the companies have got a bigger wealth in some of these countries. Yeah. Yep. So, so we're doomed economically and with that model. With this model, yeah. I mean, you know, I, like, you know, what 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 is the ultimate answer? Well, here I say it has to be. It has to be exactly that. It has to be a collective action upon which we have to enforce rules on these corporations globally because they are global entities uh, and Ireland's role in that actually is pretty big because Ireland is responsible for a hell of a lot of that 2.3 trillion euros in Apple but we have to um, have this discussion and say I mean where is this world going to go at, at this rate I mean if you if you if you look at global figures over the last pick any length of time, but you can look at it over the last 200 years, say, since industrialization kicked off. I mean, it is quite magnificent. The amount of wealth that has been created is absolutely magnificent. And are we better off as a result? Um, on average, yes. You know, we are. We, we are. You know, your chances now of being born veritably anywhere in the world are much better now than they were 200 years ago. So you have to say, okay, fine, fair enough. But we also understand more recent trends. and The environment is the most pressing one of those. You know, we understand now we have officially recorded a 1.5 degree increase in pre-industrial levels that that the world itself cannot handle this. Not everybody agrees that that even is happening. Well... It is. <laughs> whether, I know. Whether they do or whether they don't. But I mean, even socially and politically, like, I'm, I'm, I might be a little bit biased here and I, and I try and remove myself, especially when I'm teaching young minds. I try and remain apolitical on all of this. Um, but one can't but see the relation between the breakdown in trust for key institutions of democracy and the exponential rise of private corporations. Are you you're drawing a relationship? I am I, I I'm recognizing a correlation, which I mean, if pushed, I would say yes, there is a direct relationship. Are you saying the corporations are fueling this? I'm saying corporations have a, an absolutely vested interest in fueling this. Corporations Obviously, oh. we're not we're not implicating Apple no. or Spotify <laughs> no. in this no, part of no. the conversation. No. Thank you, guys. No, no, we're, no, we're not. But I mean, you know, look at the goal of any corporation is to make more money, right? Yeah. Anything that's standing in your way to making more money <sighs> is a legitimate target, and states stand in the way of corporations making money. And uh, are weaker states better for corporations? Yes, there. So that's it. Yes. Mm. Oh my God, it's depressing. It, it is, it is depressing, but at the same time, 
we've never known as much about this before you know we've never known the full extent of this like knowledge and knowledge sharing and idea sharing has never been where it has uh, and is right now and um and i do trust in humanity like mm. i do trust in humanity you know we all get distracted and christ again corporations are distracting us and uh, have a vested interest in us being distracted but i do think you know, at the base, we all understand the difference between right and wrong mm. at the collective level of humanity. I think, I mean, I think it's taken 30 years to get the environment where it needs to be on the political agenda. And that's 30 years of talking to kids in the 1980s and the 1990s and saying recycle and saying ozone layer and saying this is the kind of education that we need to do. 40 years, I'm counting. 40 years, possibly 40 years. But that's how long this kind of takes. Now I think it's time to start. And so now you're, you're looking at a population that's much more armed, you know, yeah. armed when it comes to the dialogue mm. ar- ar- around the environment. And I think, and I hope, my hope is that we can start turning to social equality mm-hmm. and start having conversations with children and bringing ideas of social equality up right through the education system so that we will be just as armed to have real conversations about it. What do you call that Greek lefty economist? Yanis uh, Verifakis. Yeah, Yanis I'm glad Verifax. you said that. Yeah. He has this idea of the living wage mm. and that the apples of the world should be contributing to us having a living wage. Mm. Is there legs in that? Yes, I think there is. Um, so so, so the idea of this is that they fund people to have a basic income. So people, if they're... Because I think in the past people were worried about um, exploitation. Now the fear is redundancy, mm. you know, like there's no use for us. Yeah. So that's where living wage is coming out of... Like there's a key term I teach a course called development and justice um, at master's level and our MA in environment, society and development. And we get quite a few students uh, from sub-Saharan Africa and from Southeast Asia. And, um, you know, I suppose they look at me, middle-aged white man, you know, talking about inequality and they're coming to this place and saying, what inequality? I mean, there's a hell of a lot of opportunity in places like Galway and places like Ireland. Um, but one of the things that has always struck me when we talk about development as a, you know, a global group um, is the term dignity. You know, dignity. Like GNP doesn't account for dignity, you know? I mean, you know, Great, you you can be an active economic agent by literally, you know, I don't know, recycling nuclear waste, you know, whatever. I mean, thinking of the really bad jobs, the really bad you know, toilet cleaners, etc., etc., etc. But you know, dignity is 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 a vital kind of level that we have to 
discuss in the development debate, right? Saying that it's it's not just a case of the teleological notion of all the developing countries in the world catching up with us. It can't be that, right? The world can't survive. The world can't survive the likes of Ghana having the same GDP that Ireland has. The world won't accept it. It'll blow up. It will blow up. We will be toast. Um, what, do, what do you mean by that? As in... There are teleological notions of what development, sorry, so teleological is this idea, it kind of goes back to an economist called uh, Rostow, where he says that every economy has a stage of growth. And so you look at the whole economies uh, across the world and you can identify them as existing in one of five stages. And it starts off with, um, you know, traditional society, I think he called it. And it goes up through levels, through industrialism, up to high mass consumption, uh, which is where we sit in Ireland, high mass consumption. Um, That's a teleological notion. You say, well, surely, you know, the idea of development is that everybody gets up to the top of the chain with us. Well, of course, A, that can't happen. It it can't happen. It can't happen. There's a whole sway. Why not? Why why not? Well, it can't happen because we are not the model to emulate. I mean, you know, it can't happen because it's unsustainable, you know, from very environmental Viewpoint because the amount of plastic that we produce, or what? It's just the amount of carbon that it takes to get up that chain. Like the amount of carbon that it takes would mean that the planet would no longer exist. So you know, you know, you can take these tests online. How many planets does it need to support your lifestyle? On average, you know, for somebody like us living in the west of Ireland, it takes four and a half planets to support our lifestyle. So go around to say, right, we're one of the richest. Nations in the world, other countries. This is getting into the whole other area with regards to mass immigration. But obviously, other countries are looking up at us, saying, "Oh, that's a lifestyle I'd like." Uh, you know, there are people in Mumbai scrolling TikTok, watching you and me. You know, do yoga on a beach. You know, because we can, and say that's a lifestyle I'd like. Uh, so let's let's emulate. Let's let's go for that. Well. We can't, right? We can't. We can't afford. What about, what about carbon offsetting? There's this movement now happening yep. within the building industry mm. where builders can carbon offset yes. their buildings yes. uh, by, bar- by buying carbon credits, etc. Yeah. I mean, Is there legs in that? I mean, look, of course, there has to be. Yes, there are legs in that. But I mean, that's called the development of underdevelopment as well. You know, as in... Well, what's that ultimately going to mean? You know, you have to be in a good enough financial position to be able to offset. So yes, it might work okay. on the scale of Galway City or County Galway or Ireland, but globally, does it work? No, because what all the rich corporations are going to do is just pay to offset it to all the poor countries and the poor countries don't have the financial capacity to offset theirs. So mm. they're just going to be left in this underdevelopment trap. Sorry, I no, T-boned you. No worries. Uh, you were talking about something else before. I, I was. Could... I was talking about, yeah, teleological notions of development and dignity and how important dignity is in relation to a living wage. All right. Um, so I think dignity is 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 really important. I don't think we can talk about development without talking about dignity. That's why people are risking their lives, you know, in makeshift rafts crossing the Mediterranean. You know, they're 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 in pursuit of a better life. They're in pursuit of, you know, what should really be a basic human right, which is to live a dignified 
life. Um, and so is there dignity for them when they get here? I, I don't know. I don't know. Probably less than they thought there would be. Um, but the question that you asked about a living wage is, yes, there has to be something to that because... Well, again, forgive me here for talking. I'm not even talking about my book yet. But uh, <laughs> like, go away, making the capital of culture. <laughs> available, We're coming to it. We're coming to it. <laughs> available at the good price yeah. from your uh, local bookstore. Um, Amazon. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but when you're talking about like corporations, wealth accrual, like 2.3 trillion dollars in Apple. Don't mean to pick on Apple. There are others. Amazon's a great example. Um, but you know, Microsoft, etc, etc, etc. These companies can't make that level of money without augmenting fundamentally the laws of supply and demand of economies, right? In what way? In what direction? Because of the sheer amount of money that they have created. The more money that there is in the world the less value there is on products, right? Our, our, our products are becoming relatively more expensive. So high grossing, high capitalization, high financial monetary accrual is creating more money in economies. And we know that. So, you know, uh, to speak of 200 years ago, there was X billion, maybe there was a trillion dollars in the world now there's trillions and trillions of dollars in the world because of all the money that's been made. The result of that is everything gets more expensive. Mm. You know, at the very basic level of economics, that's what's happening. Um, there are people that are winning in that game and they are the big corporations and there are people that are losing and they're the poorer people. They're the poorer people. And you can see that at a national uh, economy level. I mean, look, at we have a housing crisis here. We have a housing crisis. We have a cost of living crisis. Uh, although it doesn't seem to be getting as much attention now as it was. But we still have a cost of living crisis. Who does a cost of living crisis affect? Well, it affects the poorer people in a place. Um, what does the presence of nine of the, te nine of the top ten largest technology companies in this country due to a cost of living crisis, it exacerbates it. It exacerbates it. It exacerbates it. And I don't think anybody is wanting to have the conversation. I don't even want to have the conversation. Should Google leave Ireland? I don't think it should. I think there's a positive symbiosis, positive for Google, but it's positive for Ireland as well. But let's understand what the impact of Google in Ireland is. Now, there's positive impacts, reputational benefit. I mean, the reputational benefit of having Google in Ireland is massive. You know, Ireland is respected in the global So it brings in all their business. Totally, totally. I'll tell you a quick story about Intel. Intel was the first tech company, well, I mean, yeah, first tech company of the scale uh, that it, it came here at in 1979. The government at the time, made a bet. And it bet the value of supporting every job that Intel bought to Ireland to the tune of £12,000 per annum. Punts. The average industrial wage in Ireland at the time was something like £10,000. So the government said, do you know what we're going to do? Through our tax incentives... Um, uh, and a whole other of different instruments. We're going to support Intel 
to come here to this tune, basically paying them to pay people to work here. And categorically, hands down, whatever your politics, that was a bet that paid off. It was a paid off. That was the anchor tenant in Ireland becoming the tech hub that wow. it has become. So the, the government paid for that stuff effectively as effectively. a flagship, as a window to what could be achieved in Ireland. Exactly. Anchor tenant. Excellent idea. Yeah, I know what they did and the way they did it was really interesting. I, I hear tell that uh, the IDA, you know, who are responsible for bringing these businesses in, bought them down to leak slip and said, look, take it, take it. And not only that, we'll build your houses. We'll build your houses and we'll call them, you know, really weird names. Like, I think the housing estates are Silicon Plains, you know, uh, uh, around uh, Leak Slip. Uh, they said, take it and Intel went fine. And uh, said, okay, right, let us think about it. Intel hopped on a plane to Glasgow to over to the Scottish Industrial Development Authority and talk to them. And the IDA hopped on the plane after them back over to say, oh, well, you don't know. We have a bit more, and well, it's the IDA explain who they are just for overseas Sorry, listeners. Sorry, yeah, this is the Industrial Development Authority of Ireland, and they are responsible uh, for industrial development in this country. Um, not all industrial development, but industrial development, especially of foreign-owned companies. Okay, um, so they jumped in a plane, they went to Scotland, and mm-hmm. these. What did they do? They basically undercut the Scottish. How did they do that? They said they would lower their taxes more than Scotland could. They said they would... So this is a conversation between IDA and uh, Intel. Intel, yeah. But I mean, you know, look, you take it and you say, oh my God, you know, I I can't imagine what the commentary was like at the time, 1979. Like, things weren't great in Ireland in 1979. And here you have a government going spending an awful lot of money on this corporation that's doing absolutely fine. Showing a bit of leg. Showing a bit of leg, but crikey. Um, here we are, whatever, got to 40 years later or more. And you have to say, Ireland. And this, if you go onto the IDA website, it'll tell you nine of the top 10 global technology companies have a presence in Ireland and they're often serious presences, like serious presences. So what about Apple was hit there recently with a post-retrofitted tax bill? Yes. Explain that, what happened there? So what happened was the European Court of Justice um, back in 2013 uh, took a close look at Apple. Um, I mean, the European Court of Justice and Apple would have been in court over lots of different things um, at the time. But it was also part of a political climate where, um, uh, you know, a, a strong focus had come on Ireland in particular and Ireland's very low relative corporation tax. Um, so all of that was part of the mix. And essentially the ECJ found that the Irish state had undercharged undercharged Apple um, and this is even you know in the context of a very low corporations tax had still undercharged to the tune of 13 billion euros um, again I could stand to be corrected on the exact figure and, and the next exact figure but I think 
it was six minutes after the judgment was published that an appeal was uh, was lodged. An appeal on the and why wouldn't they? Well, the question is, who lodged the appeal? Well, it would have been Apple, no? <laughs> no, it wasn't Apple. It was it the Irish was, government? It was the Irish government, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Why? Yeah. Because he didn't want Apple to uproot and leave Ireland, I assume. Well, I think they thought that this would obviously set an awkward precedence, you know, uh, when it came to the whole of Ireland's game in terms of attracting foreign investment through low corporation tax. So the Irish government, yes, did appeal. Think of what the Irish government was doing in 2013. It, I, 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 again, I can think I remember uh, an acute crisis in our hospitals. I know it's bad now, but it was particularly bad. We were post-bailout, so we were... We had people on the streets uh, marching against the introduction of water charges. So post bailout was when, you know, the Troika came into Ireland in 2010 to tell them they don't know, tell Ireland. Explain what the Troika is. So the Troika was essentially the the IMF and the EU um, came in to bail out the Irish economy. Uh, They bailed out the Irish economy on the back of... um, the financial collapse of 2008. So the line of events was, uh, you, know, <laughs> you can check out the movie The Big Short on Netflix. Oh, uh, yeah. seen it. it's a great film. It's yeah. a great movie. It's a great movie that um, kind of shows us the genesis of the financial crisis of 2008. So we had reached this stage of massive overvaluations. And again, Bad metrics, you know, it's bad metrics uh, lead to huge problems, and that's that's what happened. And of course, it was it was something that started in um, in states like California, Nevada, and spread. And you know, the fickle nature of markets, you know, you know these markets. And I keep on telling my students, it's all a collective hallucination. It's all a collective. Hallucination. I won't get into that point too much now. I'll just leave that dangle there. But the markets, um, John Maynard Keynes calls it animal spirits. And there was a, you know, a recognition that heard He called it what? He called it the, um, I called it animal spirits, you know, essentially dictating this, the This market. is Keynes, it's Keynes' theory. Keynes' theory, yeah. I did, I did A-level economics. Oh, right. Okay. And, you know, I was used to that. But yeah. I remember they're talking about Keynes and all the rest. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He's coming back into my life. That's good. He is. Well, Keynes actually came back into everybody's life in uh, 2008 and afterwards. Um, How is he seen now? I, Obama was a big fan, I think, of Keynesian economic intervention. Explain, because I didn't understand. What so Keynesianism and uh, John Maynard Keynes, really interesting character, really interesting character, probably not to most A-level students, but uh, no, genuinely is an economist. Um who was also responsible for a founding member of the Arts Council in Britain, uh, a British economist at Cambridge, I think, was his institution. But uh, his economic theory was uh, most, most easily explained as, no, you can't leave everything up to the market, Adam Smith. Uh, in actual fact, what um, drives demand, what drives markets is demand, right? So you need, you need governments 
to be actively involved in the marketplace to ensure there is demand to essentially create fully functioning markets. So for Adam Smith, no interference. He calls it laissez-faire, you know, leave the market work for John Maynard Keynes. Think, no, there's a role for the state and the state has to be actively involved in the market. And we have been going between these two guys in terms of policy ever so, since. So they're both extreme, are they? No, well, I wouldn't say they are extreme. I extreme mean, for the middle. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, you know, you can, you can see, like, you know, De Valera in Ireland in uh, the 1930s and 1940s, like, he was, and the Irish state was, an absolute Keynesian ideology, you know, uh, like John Maynard Keynes came over here to congratulate uh, De Valera on the success of his economic policies, economic policies that were taken directly from Keynesian, uh, Keynesianist um, theory. Um, so, right, okay. Sorry, so I keep have Keynes. Again. No, 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 yeah. no worries, no worries, no worries. I was talking about a timeline from 2008. Uh, so that herd, herd spirits, animal spirits kicks in bank runs, bank runs everywhere, uh, massive overvaluation is recognised, you know, uh, great, again, Ireland is a great case study, I know, uh, we, I lived here at the time and it didn't feel like a great case study at the time, um, but, you know, this was a country, and if I can just diverge for a second to set the context in Ireland for 2008, it was a country that had ran counter-cyclical to the major economies of Europe. So Ireland's economic success, as it was from about 2002 to 2008, was, I mean, it was GDP growth rates of in around 5, 6, 7, 8%. I mean, um, where Germany and France were languishing, you know, at 0.51% growth. Um, and that was bad news for Ireland. And it was bad news for Spain and bad news for Portugal and Italy and Greece, as it turned out, because all of these economies were uh, running countercyclical to the central core economies of uh, Europe. And what happens when your economy is stagnating, as it was in um, in the centre, is you relax your monetary policy. You make it easier for people to access money. And what you don't do in economies that are doing really well is increase people's access to money because what that does is if economies are going well you want to restrict the money supply so because you want to keep a hand a hold on inflation you don't want prices going through the roof but the exact opposite happened in Ireland everyone had access to money we had access we had there was money everywhere you know 100% mortgages uh you know I remember a friend of mine telling telling me that a bank manager, all of these remain unnamed, told him he was dangerously under-borrowed in 2005 or 2006. You know, the idea that if you didn't have a house, you were crazy back then. That was absolutely it. Housing cons- housing boom, housing boom, construction-led, uh, construction-led economic development and positive things also happening as a result of very positive vibes. Like if there, if an economy can be accused of relying too much on one sector, it's okay because it creates a good feeling and there was a good feeling and housing was an okay sector to be 
overly reliant on because everybody was benefiting from it. Right, so that set the context for a particularly acute financial crash in Ireland in 2008 because um, most of our wealth was residing in houses and um, as the kind of global readjustment happened, it was, you know, tectonic shocks here in Ireland. And that forced the poor Brian Lennon, God rest his soul, um, to uh, issue a bank guarantee to tell everybody, calm down. Don't be trusting your animal spirits now by going running to the bank. There's a bank guarantee, 1,500 or 150,000 euros for every account. And of course, there wasn't, <laughs> you know, um, but it, I mean, there was nothing else for him to do at the time. So I was, I was in London at the time, so I was quite oblivious to what mm. was happening on the ground here. Mm. What did that look like for everybody? It so was, you're saying, of course, there wasn't. So how did that play out? Well, it was a scary, scary time. I mean, it was. It was massive layoffs. Like, we had been at full employment. The economy was raging. Um, but everything started to turn and turn for the worse, you know. So that was anything like, you know, car sales plummet, uh, you know, spending plummets as a result of that you're seeing you know the heart and soul being ripped out of places you know when an economy but you mentioned there the 150,000 euro being guaranteed yes yeah yeah. well so how did that play out well it played out with (laughs) essentially the financial collapse of the Irish economy but did people go to the bank thinking they had that no I think it did what it needed to do as in it stopped people going to the bank Mm. You, you know I think so I think Brian Lennon was right. I don't think, I can't see what he, he could have done. Look, at I'm not a financial economist. I, I, mm. I don't know. Maybe there was other options. Probably there were. But it seems to make sense, you know, that you just say, look, at, there's no point in running to the bank now, even though it feels like everything's collapsing. There's loads of unpaid debts around the place. Don't worry, the state will guarantee that mm. you have that money in the bank. And as a result, then there is no bank run. Because, I mean, a bank run can be absolutely catastrophic like mm. don't mind the economy that is when you know serious civil unrest mm. happens you know as was, and like serious civil unrest was it wasn't not part of the conversation in 2009 you know like this is it <laughs> i mean you had the likes of serious civil unrest in 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 greece um you know arguably you could have done it a bit more but i say that now but um no, no, I think, I th- I think it was a very difficult position for a finance minister to be in. Albeit, we can also say it was the government that he was in that really had helped us find ourselves in the position we were in. We can talk a bit more about that. But, mm-hmm. um, but all that being said, um, no, it does. It leads to the the collapse, and so Ireland's. Uh, I think it was uh, a triple A rating on the bonds market you know Ireland makes a decision not to burn the bondholders and if you remember all of this was you know tripping off people's tongues at the time we like and again I could be stand to be corrected on the on the details of this but Ireland loses its triple A rating right and a triple A rating is basically how international investors see your economy so is the economy stable yes it is it's triple A locked in you're fine to invest in that place and it goes down to i don't know a b rating i can't really remember what the 
categories are. But what that what that means is um, we have bondholders pulling their money out of the Irish economy, and as a result, we, the citizens of Ireland, bear the brunt. You know, so we don't have money when it comes to public services because the money's gone, and. Um, you know, decision was made not to burn the bondholders, not to say, well, it was speculation. Like, that's speculation, pulling your money out of an economy. It was speculation that led to this crash. You should burn the speculators. The people who speculated should be the ones that bear the brunt of this. But in actual fact, who bore the brunt of it was the Irish people. Um, again, look, history will will reflect differently in the, the immediate history at the time. Made it look like that was a bad idea. I said, we should just burn these bloody venture capital funds in Connecticut. Like, you know, these guys, so what? They're 5% down on their end-of-year portfolio. Why should they really care? We have, you know, seriously underfunded hospitals here. We have an education sector that's on its knees as a result of um, as a result of the fiscal contraction that's happening. Um, but we didn't burn the bondholders and, you know, we held strong to our very pro-business kind of approach here in Ireland saying, no, we want, we want to, we want to, we'll take, we'll take our bad medicine and we'll get over it quicker. And I mean, that was a difficult pill for the Irish people to swallow, a really difficult pill for us to swallow. Um, you know, it made sense to some, it didn't make any sense to many of us. Um, but where are we now? Well, we're back at AAA rating, I think, and we got back quicker than anybody else did, um, arguably because we took our medicine. Um, it's a it's a tough one. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. You know, you, like the the fortunes of Ireland and Greece. And I wrote I wrote about that uh, with a Greek colleague of mine. You know how I tracked both economies over the last century to watch uh, how they both came independent. Both had kind of, you know, key founding fathers um, in terms of directing the kind of economies that both would have. Um, Greece went for public spending uh, in a way that Ireland never did. And that uh, differentiated it because Ireland went for the pro-business approach. And, you know, here we are and we are different countries now in different places as a result. Which is Which was the more prudent choice? You know, hard to say. I mean, it depends on what where you're looking at it from. But I mean, objectively speaking, you know, who's got who's the wealthiest country now? It's Ireland, um, quite a bit. And you know, Greece was wealthier than Ireland when we went into the European Union. But Ireland and Greece both went in seventy three, and you can watch their different tracks. They both kind of converge again around 2008 because both economies get bailed out. Um, but since 2008, it's taken the Greek economy longer to recover than it has the Irish economy. I'm looking at the time. So I want to yeah. get on to the book. Oh. However, yeah. I've got one last question to sure. deal with this macroeconomics before we get into the minutiae of one city in Ireland. Mm. So... It's around my trips home to uh, South Derry. Mm. I would hit Draperstown on the Google Maps mm. and then it would take me up most of the way on the main road and then all of a sudden I'm in the back end of nowhere going yeah. up through the spine of Ireland and I see all these decimated villages. Yeah. And my heart breaks. Mm. 
What is the answer to that? Oh God! Rebuilding the rebuilding these villages that are that are losing their way because the the, the corner shops have gone and uh, mm. well, you, you talk. Um, there's a term that always comes to, to mind that won't mean much, but um, the term is the spatial articulation of capital, right? So. Never before have we lived in a world where spatially that world has been articulated so much by the economic model that we have pursued. Right? So we, um, when, you know, I talked about economic growth over the last 30 or so years being, albeit with a crash, but being generally exponential, where that growth has occurred has been completely biased, you know, geographically speaking. You know, n- not just in the developed north in the main of the globe, but in very concentrated places in the developed north. So we've never the had... Northern Hemisphere. Sorry, talking. Northern Hemisphere, yeah. yeah, 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 no, yeah. Not, not in Draperstown. <laughs> not in Draperstown, no, no, unfortunately for the people of Draperstown. But no, the global north... Um, but, you know, even talking about the global north, you're talking really about cities in the global north and um, that's where the money is being made. I mean, never before has the economy has the economy become so urban, you know, uh, and that's it. That's it. Look at where all the money is coming from. It's, well, you know, tech, medical devices. These are urban pursuits, you know, historically, human history, where we made our wealth was on the land. So on the land, uh, if you had good land, you had big villages and cities beside good land. You know, you could explain that if that land had good access points in the form of rivers and the form of um, ports, you know, that's where wealth uh, resided. But we've completely moved away from geography being a uh, foundational factor in the economy um wealth is created aspatially now so the result is it's seen as an urban pursuit and so we have this and we have even like ireland again great example um you know in the pursuit of the global neoliberal economic model is you look at the figures for ireland and if you take dublin out of it you know, it's a completely different country. The amount of wealth that is created in the Dublin city region relative to the rest of Ireland is massive. Uh, I mean, and that goes way beyond, you know, population statistics. So obviously we've around 2 million people in the greater Dublin area and a population of around 5 million. So you're talking what, you know, just under half. But, you know, you're talking about at least two thirds, if not three quarters of the wealth is created in that place. Um, so that speaks to this spatial articulation now to talk to Ireland in particular um, and even to reference um, you know the Celtic Tiger era and what I call Celtic Tiger number two which is kind of 2002-2004 that's ultimately I think what played a role in killing off rural Ireland Um, because we enjoyed uh, a thriving property sector and 
that property sector, yes, was had its hot spots in the cities, but it also filtered out more so than any other sector has into rural Ireland. So we're seeing housing estates going up in Balladrine, in Draperstown probably as well. And the result was there was jobs there. There was money there, you know, and it was bringing people in as well. And, um, but when all of that went and when the crash hit, it hit the likes of Draperstown and Balladrine harder than it hit the Galways and the Dublins. And so that kind of starts to, it's the beginning of a story that has many different strands and strands that we'll all know. I mean, we'll all know it's the presence of large multinational retailers coming in, setting up on the edges of these towns, people driving in their cars, not going to the local shops anymore because it's Thursday deal. And why wouldn't you go there? And frankly, I do. I mean, we all do. And, um, that is the kind of, you know, that's the new way of of cultural consumption or just consumption more well, generally. What's the answer? The answer is, like, every 10 years or so, the Irish state publishes a spatial strategy. And its most recent one was, well, the National Planning Framework and the National Development Plan. If you read that, I think... And I'm I'm accused of being overcritical here. If you read that, it 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 reads quite a bit like the state has said, "Well, look at that's that's it. The game is up. The future is urban. Let's just forget about it." Um, and I don't think anybody wants to do that. We're all like we are all. If we're not from these places, we're one generation away from these places. I mean, this is. Ireland, you know, Ireland is those places. You know, Dublin's an international city now. Go is trying to be one, um, but this is is the cultural bed of Ireland is in the towns and villages um, uh, across across the country. So, what what is the answer? Like, there is there is no one answer, but part of the answer has to be around trusting ourselves so the Irish economic model I think I've referred enough to it now for the last while has been don't trust ourselves trust other people to give the jobs to come in and to uh, employ and to make the goods and to ship them out you know we've placed an it has been an exogenous led industrial model industrialization by invitation really um and you think, okay, that's actually fair enough. We we rode that boat for a while and it did us well. There's no denying it did us very well. Um, we're 100 years since the free state of, in this part of Ireland and it is about time we now had a real conversation, a real conversation about the kind of Ireland that we want to be. It's time we can give up. I know this is a conversation particular to this part of the island uh, but I respect that but we can talk about Northern Ireland in a second but it's it's time that we give up the post-colonial kind of view on things and oh we can't do it sure you could get the Americans in to do it and we trust in our own ingenuity our own entrepreneurial and do you think that's not happening already um 
I think we're getting better at it. I think we're getting better at it, but I think we need to be much better at it. I mean, I think when you compare us to the likes of even Finland, um, you know, countries of a comparable size like Denmark, you have a way better chance of making a go of your corporation or your indigenous company in 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 those countries and than we do. I think it's trust. I think it is trust. I think. Well, what's that turn? What's that look like in terms of policy difference? Uh, in policy difference, I mean, like, I, I realize I, I don't want to sound, you know, and I, and and this can sound like it's it's politically motivated, but it's not. I completely respect the work of the IDA. I think the IDA has been the best marketing agency in the world. Like in the world, it has done a fantastic job. Uh, in promoting Ireland as a place to do business. But I do think the IDA has a sister organisation called Enterprise Ireland, which is just focused on indigenous companies, right? So Irish-owned, Irish-made companies. Um, the money for both of them is far from equal. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the the press coverage from both is far from equal. There's one agency that dominates those two, and that's 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 the IDA. A little bit more of that IDA thinking, a little bit more of the IDA ideology pointed towards indigenous enterprise, true enterprise Ireland could be started to help. And this is not to negate the multitude of different people working in this area that are, are, are working hard. Are we not getting into that area again where I mentioned about Francois Hollande, whereby if the finances were to be compressed a bit between the two organisations, mm. that maybe it could have a washout effect in terms of organisations leaving Ireland? I, I don't know why I'm asking the question. I mean... I, you know, probably that explains quite a bit of it, but I think, I think now is the time to say if they want to leave, leave. I've sat down with the heads of many of these uh, foreign-owned entities in Ireland, and I understood and I, I knew that I didn't want to go straight into the question about tax, but it really isn't all about tax you know like Ireland as a place to do business is fantastic for lots of reasons it's fantastic because I think and I know we might be a little bit biased here but I think we have a unique perspective on the world being Irish and I'm talking very much in general here I've heard time and time again that there's critical and creative faculties that are shown by Irish workforces that they just don't get in other parts of their corporations. I know that Ireland, in the global production networks of these corporations, is often highly regarded, and that's not what that's not just because it's cheap tax or has been cheap tax. When you look at the biographies of all of these corporations, um, you know the nine of the top ten. Ireland is often their first non-US based uh, plant. So this is their first time becoming multinational corporations. They do it in Ireland because they know that Ireland can support that and they know that Ireland has a track record. And they quickly, when you, you can also track the biography as to the relative position. So take Apple, take even Dell, take Microsoft, Take Hewlett-Packard here in Galway. 
European headquarters for software development in Hewlett Packard is in Galway. You know, that's that's not tax, you know. That's to do with the workforce. And I remember when in I think it was nineteen ninety, there was a, a news flash on RTE television telling us that digital was closing in Galway, losing nine hundred manufacturing jobs. The fact is digital didn't close. Digital evolved through Compaq into Hewlett Packard and now is employing way more people out there at that digital site than it was in 1990. I think it's actually expanding now. I think they mark 25 years. It is what I term in the literature network embedded within the global corporation of Hewlett Packard. And it's time for us to recognize this and to say, it's not a case that these companies are going to get up and leave first thing in the morning. These are embedded. I mean, they mightn't be physically embedded in the place, but the place is embedded within their networks of global production. So many of these companies can't do their European operations without Ireland. And that's, you know, that's that's a positive relationship between Ireland and the corporation. The corporation benefiting from being in Ireland, Ireland benefiting from the corporation being here. So I think it is time for trust. I think it is time to step up and say, have some confidence in ourselves, recognise our place in uh, this very complicated global world and say, look, we've done this with uh, foreign-owned companies. Why can't we do it a bit more with our own? Fair enough. Mm. What time is it? It's five o'clock nearly. So what I'm thinking is... Mm. It probably, if you don't mind coming back and all the time. Sure, sure, sure. Because <laughs> sure. we haven't talked about Galway making a capital of culture. It's a great book. And it's uh, by Orban Press. And it doesn't say the price on it, I suppose. Uh, 17 euros. Oh, very good. Uh, cheap at half the price. Cheap at half the price. Um, yeah. Cheap at twice the price. Nobody say. Sorry, excuse me. Um, a loose end that maybe we didn't tie up was living wage. Oh, yes. I was talking about the Greek yes. economist, the lefty yes. dude. Yes. Yeah, Where, can you tie up that loose end? Is that, via, is, that, is that achievable and what must happen in order to achieve it? Hmm. Uh, two examples. In Finland, they have introduced uh, a living wage. And um, in Ireland, we've introduced the artist's living wage. And there was a report out recently, and I didn't read it in detail, but... There was some headline stats, you know, in terms of increased productivity amongst artists, decreased feelings of isolation. I mean, naturally decreased um, or increased mental health uh, among the artist community. I mean, it goes back to the point that I was trying to make about dignity. I think this is something that we don't consider enough when it comes to broader issues of economics we just see economics as residing in figures residing in institutions beyond um, our control economics and economies are social constructs right you know, they're of us you know if we don't engage in the economy the economy doesn't exist you know if we all woke up tomorrow and said no there would be no economy um and that's the point i still am convinced i've gotten across to my students but uh, I, I i do try it again and again but Dignity is vital and dignified economies are more sustainable economies and dignified economies are more equitable economies. So it absolutely is beholding on us to consider how we do that. 
And I think living wage is an example of how we might get there. Um, I'm not so sure that Yanis Varoufakis, I mean, Yanis Varoufakis wrote a great book on techno-feudalism and it published recently. And it's really, really interesting how he sees the world and how he sees the fact that most of the wealth in the world resides in um, technology corporations. I'm not so sure that that the feedback loop is as easy from Apple paying for our um, our our living wage. I, I think the state has to be involved in there somehow. I mean, ideally, as a filter, taking that thirteen billion. By the way, that thirteen billion euros is still sitting in some account somewhere. Um, the government haven't uh, taken it back and have been appealing um, consistently since. Um, I'm laughing that it's, it's the government that's appealing. I know. Yeah, carry on. I know. I know. Um, but no, I, I, I think I think that's that's it. I mean, you know, these these are difficult pills to swallow, but you know, a national health service was a difficult pill for people to swallow. Um, in Britain at the time, again at the time under Keynes, you know, uh, our Keynesian ideology. But I mean, it's something that albeit, you know, not where it needs to be, but it's something that British people now wouldn't do without, um, and quite rightly so. I mean, these these are the real markers of development. You know, the real markers of development are how you treat the most or the least fortunate in your society. That's the true marker of development. GMP and GDP are not telling us how well we're doing that. GMP and GDP are just telling us the rate at which we're producing stuff. And even in its doing of that, it's not fully capturing it uh, well at all. So that's got to be um, how we start changing the debate around wealth and changing the debate around value. And dignity, I think, is a key part of that. Pat, it's been absolutely thrilling for me to have been part of this conversation. You know, whenever I was studying A-level economics, I used to think this stuff puts a beard on a golf ball. But now that I'm uh, at the tender age of um, of half a century, I'm yes. finding it more interesting yeah. and unavoidable in terms mm. of how it impacts one's life. Yeah. So to have a further understanding can only be a good thing. And um, I'm appreciative of your time. I'm sorry we didn't get talking about your... Fabulous book, Galway, Making a Capital of Culture, but I really want to dive into that. So you're very welcome to come back another time. Sure. We'll set that up and we'll make that happen. Perfect. And we'll keep it macro again in terms of, so that it can go on, on the Ireland podcast and mm -hmm. it'll be uh, more beneficial to other listeners. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, Pat, so for now, go on my yogurt. Okay, slam Slam. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.